0: Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. Now, if you are on social media, you would have seen a tweet from um, the account of Professor Richard Callant, who is a UCT law professor, and it was a statement from him as an Associate Professor of Public Law at UCT, and I'll just read a little bit from it in the unlikely event that you are not familiar with what happened this afternoon. And it says in light of the objections received by the speaker from certain political parties i've accepted the view of the speaker that it may not be in the best interest of the parliamentary process for me to serve as a member of the section 89 panel i am fiercely independent person and so i absolutely reject the suggestion of bias that was made against me. As a trained lawyer, I'm capable of assessing the evidence and reaching conclusions based on an impartial application of the relevant law or rules without fear or favor. And I will do so regardless of anything that I have said or written in the past in my role as a political commentator. However, this is not the only consideration. I have devoted my career to constitutional democracy and accountability and the rule of law. Accordingly, I do not want unnecessary controversy over my appointment to divert attention from the real issues that are at stake or the possibility of undue delay arising from it to clutter or otherwise impair the integrity of such an important constitutional process. And then he goes on and he thanks the party that had initially nominated him um, for standing by there, having done so and recognising his professional independence. Well, I've asked Professor Richard Callan to join me and asked to talk through some of these issues because I think they are of public interest. And although he's incredibly busy and, like me, a little bit tired, we are doing, well, public duty and getting stuck into these issues. You're listening to UCBS on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're gonna hear a lot of law, politics, and ethics, how they intersect, and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When
1: people saw their children must know this are sellouts, they put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm what not going to apologize. apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? <laughs> <laughs> so they stole it.
0: Richard, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Pleasure, uh, you say it I'm glad you framed it like that. I think you and I have that commitment to what some people pompously call public intellectualism or trying to you know, explore these really important issues in an accessible format in a way that people can engage with. That's part of an active vibrant democracy. So I applaud you, as always, for that, Eusebius.
0: I want to come to a broader set of issues about our role as analysts and commentators. But before we have legit sort of entitlement to do so, the news item of the day regarding yourself requires that we take a couple of steps back when you were nominated to be part of this committee looking in a preliminary way into a section 89 motion of the constitution what happened in your mind as you were determining whether to accept or decline
1: well my first thought was that this was a a very important process it's the first time that in modern democratic South Africa, a president has faced this impeachment process. And this rule change a couple of years ago from parliament to create this first level inquiry would have been a first. And so to serve on the panel would be an honor and a a very important uh, responsibility to undertake. So I, I gave very careful thought to whether I should accept the nomination. Because as you indicate in your introduction, like you, I'm a political commentator, a public commentator, and so I do say things as I see them about the political scene, mm-hmm. uh, including about the current president and So I did think carefully about it, but I took the view that I'm a person of independent mind, I'm a trained lawyer, as you know, and I believe that I would look objectively at any set of evidence, apply the rules and law to the evidence, uh, and reach a conclusion, a finding based. On that evidence, and I would do so without fear or favour, and with an open mind. So, therefore, I accepted the nomination, and it came from a party that I have uh, regard for—the uh, leadership of, of Patricia Lill, the Secretary General Brett Herron. and so I was um, I was grateful that they had trusted me sufficiently to to nominate me, and I therefore accepted the nomination.
0: Well, at least in the Twitter sphere, there was criticisms. What? You will remember, I even reached out to you privately and congratulated you because I thought this is quite an honor to be able to play this kind of role in our democracy. I have to confess, I didn't give much thought to whether it's inappropriate at all for you to accept the nomination, because I did not instinctively think that there was such an issue. The Twitter response, I did find interesting, I have to confess, genuinely interesting, because there's always those people who will love you regardless of what you do wrong. There's those people who will hate you regardless of what you do right. But then there are, if you will, people who are genuinely dialogical, that you can't, any of us can't accuse of being motivated. I'll give two random examples in my subjective opinion. Um, I thought someone like Mbazima Shiloha, for example, suddenly made me go, Oh, wait, I wonder if there are questions of perceived independence that I had not thought about in my haste to congratulate someone that I respect personally. And then a similar kind of tweet from Susan Poe who, in my mind, is also someone who's very analytical and not prone to looking to be retweeted as an end in itself. And that made me want to ask you how you felt about the criticism as it unfolded voluminously, and you trended at that point and whether it made you think at all, that even if you are objectively independent of mind, that you had not given adequate prior consideration to perception.
1: Yes, and and, and some of those kinds of tweets uh, did give me pause for thought in the immediate aftermath of the appointment. And I, and I, I, I placed more weight on them as I suspect you did than kind of the more obviously partisan politicized tweets from rather obvious quarters who have been in the game and so i did have pause for thought and that led me to over the following 24 to 36 hours um have some you know quite vigorous and active thought processes with myself and with with people i uh, respect um to to get their views a small circle of people and i i thought thought long and hard about it and of course, one reached for the test for recusal, and the test for recusal has two parts to it. One, are you are you biased? Secondly, is there a reasonable apprehension of bias? Mm-hmm. And I was convinced, and I wouldn't have accepted the nomination otherwise, that I have an open, independent mind, and therefore I am not biased. And and secondly, on the reasonable apprehension, I, I really focused on that word reasonable. Now, the difficulty in service was that um, come Friday night, uh, twenty-four hours after my appointment, Parliament uh, sent me a letter which summarised the EFS objection, but said nothing about the DA's objection. Certainly, didn't set out the DA's, DA's objection. All I know of the DA, DA objection is what I, I read in the press, and which, by the way, uh, provoked a very staunch defence of my integrity and independence from the Good Party on that Friday. Mm. So, um, in the evening, I, I did. Received this letter, and I uh, rightly was given an opportunity to respond to it, which I did on the monday uh, and Having thought about it all weekend, I reached the conclusion that, on the basis of the objection from the EFF and the evidence that was in their uh, in their objection, that it didn't found a reasonable apprehension of bias because the evidence or the points that they were making in that letter were based on um, articles I'd written some time ago. They were about, obviously, the president and my political commentary on the president. But either they were out of context or they just seemed irrelevant to the question of whether I would have an open mind or not. It was a sort of shotgun approach to it. So, for example, the first objection or first piece of evidence to justify their objection was that I'd once said we need more of Cyril, not less of Cyril. Well, that was in October, I think, or November 2020. In a column in which I said we needed him to communicate more about COVID. Remember, he'd had those, those far side chats on a Friday evening, the family meeting, so called. And then there was a long gap at one point. And I wrote a column saying, actually, we need him to communicate more because generally he's doing that quite well. It helps the public understand what he's thinking, what his government's thinking in response to the pandemic. And I was arguing he needed more. It had nothing to do with him having a second term, nothing to do with that. And so it was taken completely out of context. I won't go through all the others, but many of them were in a similar vein. And I just thought, looking at that objectively, what this revealed from the EFF was a partisan uh, approach to the issue. Obviously, they've got skin in the game. They, Their political party they have every right to try and uh, uh, support, uh, take, take their political stance forward. But I didn't think it founded a reasonable apprehension of bias. And I, I said so in my response to the speaker. And I said that I was still willing and capable of serving. However, I added that if she took a different view or if she thought that I, my appointment would, and, it, and the controversy around it, would stand in the way or impair or obscure or otherwise cloud the the process, then I would be absolutely willing to, to recuse mm-hmm. myself, reconsider my position. because um, What was her view, of- Richard? Well, I, I, she, her view was announced today, which was that having taken legal advice and so on, she felt that it would be best, uh, for me to withdraw. And we, we, you know, we, we, this was a decision therefore taken in consultation, in my view. Um, and I have, uh, in effect withdrawn from this process because I want the process to matter, not because it's yeah. about me. It really shouldn't be about any one individual. It needs to be about the integrity of the process. I certainly don't want to get in the way of that the risk of sounding pompous, I have devoted a lot of my career to constitutional democracy and public accountability and and I don't want to be in any way um, interfering into impairing such a process as important as this.
0: I was too tired as you and I spoke about our different fatigues um, earlier um, to actually smile when I read your statement but I was smiling in my head because I know that both as a lawyer and as a good communicator every word was in place and every word that was not there was chosen not to be there. But I get to ask you now, and you can answer as you see fit. Do you still believe and still stand by the view that A, you are independent and impartial. B, that a perception to the contrary is unreasonable and that the basis of no longer being part of the committee is purely to not be a distraction from the work rather than a concession to any of the critics.
1: Yes, and without equivocation. Uh, And um, I really don't want this to be about me. I'm very happy to discuss this with you. And and I think it's always worth putting on record the the position of of actors when when decisions like this are taken and processes like this unfold, particularly the first time. Mm -hmm. Because precedent, in a sense, is set. And the wider issue, which I know you're going to come to, is really a really interesting one about whether somebody can kind of wear more than one hat in society, whether you can be a political commentator, like you and I are, and also play a role such as this that requires impartiality. And maybe the answer to that question is no. Um, I, I'd be disappointed if that was the case, because uh, I strongly believe that people of integrity are able to put aside uh, the, 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 the viewpoints they've they've made or issued previously in order to objectively assess a a new situation based on the evidence that becomes available at that point and in that process. And I fully, uh, without hesitation, believe that I would uh, have been able to perform that task, but that's irrelevant now. Uh, I'm out of the picture, and my best wishes are to Parliament and the impeachment process that must follow. And in particular, um, uh, former Chief Justice Sandili Aubo who will chair this panel. Um, Mm -hmm. He's a man of unimpeachable integrity, of course. Uh, uh, In my view, one of the great chief justices. It was a great pity he didn't serve longer uh, in that role. But uh, a a jurist of the finest uh, order and and a person who will lead this process, I've no doubt impeccably. Uh, And someone who the public can trust.
0: Let's segue into that second issue, which is something that I've always thought interesting. And it's a pity that this is what has occasioned us to go there. It may require another couple of bites of the cherry, maybe with more interlocutors on another occasion. But that second part, so the first part of the question was just getting the facts out of the way around you no longer being part of this process. But the broader issue here is a principled and maybe also a tactical issue. And that's the question of how many hats we can wear. Um, And it's an interesting one. and, And, you know, it's not so much asking you these questions now, but us being in conversation as fellow analysts for that matter. I often, to take my second book as an example, have disappointed people who have read Could I Vote DA? And I'd never, at, at no point do I answer that question. And part of the reason I don't answer that question is because I've often wondered, I wonder what would happen to how my work would be perceived if I was blunt about who I voted for. What would that do to what people actually actually think? Um, it was only perhaps during the worst parts of the Zuma years, in fact, that many of us as analysts were pretty clear, this person is bad news, yeah, is unequivocally what we think about it. The ANC is going that direction at the moment as well, where many analysts are not losing face for saying, don't vote ANC. I mean, you can hardly pick up a weekend newspaper without there being a columnist. Even an editor coming out guns blazing saying anything but the ANC. And, and yet at a principled level, Richard, I've often wondered um, whether that level of specificity about political preferences, policy preferences, as opposed to a more discursive, analytical role that falls short of having a clear position on these matters is what a quote unquote good analyst should do. What are your thoughts on our role in that respect?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting conversation. I, I don't know the answers, I, I think we 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 will maybe scratch the surface of this now, Davis. And as you say, need to elaborate on it and build on this uh, with other people sure. in due course. But but if one takes as a sort of analogous situation, the role of a judge, very different, but in a in a in a in a way similar, because the the reason why judges are discouraged from appearing on television and commenting on things, and of course, there's one great exception to that, Dennis Davis. <laughs> he's managed to pull it off with with his great flair for such things but but in general lawyers and judges judges in particular are discouraged from offering a view on any topic lest that issue or topic comes before them as a judge unless therefore they are seen to be closed-minded on it because they've already offered an opinion so i think that extrapolate that to and go back to this situation with the panel and and pala pala if i'd written a piece in which i'd said unequivocally and 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 you know showing Wholehearted support for the current president—that you know he's got no case to answer. There can't possibly be anything wrong. He's clean. You know, move on. There's nothing to see. Then I think there'll be a real problem here. But of course, I a I haven't uh, done that, and and, um, and and b all of my commentary around the president, as with all of my commentary, I hope, is underpinned by the infrastructure of my beliefs about constitutional democracy and the rule of law. So, for example, the one thing I had written about the president of Palapala on the 31st of August uh, in my Mail and Guardian column was that it was a really great pity and a shame, in fact, that um, shameful that he had turned up to Parliament that day for presidential questions and refused to answer the, the questions put to him on Palapala. Mm-hmm. I thought that was unacceptable because he is accountable to Parliament. Parliament is his primary accountability port. And he was saying, no, no, I'm going to answer questions of other agencies. And as I said in that piece, I thought that was wrong in principle because of the mm-hmm. constitutional accountability um, point. So that was the one thing I'd said about it, which interestingly, of course, pointed in a in a in a different direction to the uh, unfounded, I would say, allegations of bias that came from some quarters.
0: I think inconsistent as well. If we if the public is honest, and my listeners of the podcast are honest with themselves, regardless of their particular factional convictions or their party convictions or ideological convictions. There are political analysts and commentators, and I'm thinking aloud here, we can play example table tennis, who are often drafted into the state to be able to play an advisory role, to be part of this group, that group. You find someone being a political analyst today, tomorrow they are suddenly part of some BEE structure that has to rethink the legislation, or someone like Prof Maluleka that everyone respects as a commentator. And then you see he's got a new role in the National Planning Commission. And yet when that person, a couple of months later, appears on TV again to opine on what is playing out at the ANC elective conference, you're not gonna see strongly worded letters to an editor saying, why is this person being chosen by ENCA or by SABC to comment? even though they had in the interim played a role within the state, which if we want to be slavish about the perception logic, one might say makes them compromise because they are perceived to be part of an ANC-led state.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. And, and let me respond with this example that went through my mind that weekend when I was wrestling with this, you say, I welcome your thought. Often in life when you're grappling with these kind of ethical or, or kind of conflictual situations, it's worth tipping the, the the tipping the uh, the sort of the people around so so let's take for example the impeachment process involving the public protector at the moment one of the things that um Brett Heron and, and a couple of other members of parliament have made to me about that process is it's really important to go through it it's really important to give darling imperson for all his antics and bad behavior to give him full opportunity to test the evidence and to and to defend his his clients why because imagine if this had been uh, in the era of Jacob Zuma. Imagine if this was uh, Madame Saylor who was being impeached, and and Zuma was using his power and his grip over the ANC caucus, as he did with Nkandla, to try and bring down a, a very difficult but integ- t- uh, independent-minded public protector. Then we would want the process to be very robust, would we not? We'd want it to be able to explore every nook and cranny to enable those with authority to make a, an appropriate decision based on, on the law and the evidence. And and I imagined in my case, well, imagine if it was, you know, President Zuma still, who was in office, who was being impeached, and this process had been brought into play. And imagine if the third member of the panel was Professor uh, Sipo Sepe, who you are. Who <laughs> now, uh, you're chuckling. Um, I think partly I would have guessed, because most of us would regard Professor Sipo as one eye in his assessment of mm. politics, very, very uh, aligned with Mr. Zuma and uh, RET. I, I don't want to defame him. It's not about him. And I, if he's ever listens to this, I, I yeah. know, apologize. He's got a
0: cl- He's got a clearly. He's got a position that he holds clearly.
1: Yes, and I'm not trying to denigrate. He calls it as he sees it, but I would argue he is partisan. I would say his alignment to that that grouping is is really dedicated. I don't have that, and and. I criticize as much as I um, praise certain actors, and I believe I'm balanced in that. And over 20 years of writing columns and commentary, 25 years of commentary in this country, I've always tried to be very balanced uh, and to see the nuances uh, and to be reasonable um, in my analysis. And so therefore, I think there's a distinction. I'd like to think there's a big distinction, a substantive distinction between someone like um, that person and myself as commentators. But, you know, everything is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? And, and it's not for me to make that judgment. And that's the debate I think we're having here, you say, is whether those of us who wear multiple hats, which is increasingly common globally, I mean, in this modern society, portfolio careers, people work for different people, they work for different sectors, get paid by different people, and they have to juggle all of this. And it raises really interesting questions about professional integrity and conflicts of interest.
0: I... I think you are right that we are laying the foundation for parts of this that need to be explored in greater detail. And I think that's a sufficient win for this podcast entry. There are two more areas in that direction that I just want to raise and get your comments on. And then we we'll leave it there for today. I've always been a bit of a maverick on this question from a journalism point of view, which analogizes to the question of the commentariat, because the role of the commentator is adjacent to the one that the, the, the journalist plays. And, and there's a similar controversy in journalism. You'll recall a couple of years ago at one of the ANC's birthday bashes, um, Karima Brown, Fukanim Dare and Amy Musgrave were um, criticized by Marion Tum in a piece that she'd written, Daily Maverick. And I, I love all of them, Marion included for their work, um, for having ANC regalia that they were, happened to be wearing and there was a massive controversy around whether or not it's appropriate for political journalists to be seen wearing an ANC t-shirt for example now to some extent again I think there's hypocrisy there but the 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 position that I hold and I want to know what yours is and I, I would apply the same to us as commentators as I do to journalists is that firstly objectivity is absolute bull it is a complete myth that what you should be aiming at in good journalism is balance fairness and a commitment to truth truthfulness and accuracy. Those are very important values and ideals, but they are to be distinguished from objectivity. Not because objectivity is a bad thing, but it's a misnomer. You bring your entire personal biography, your intellectual biography to the newsroom. Who you choose as an analyst to include in your piece, who you choose not to call for comment, are all part of your background influences that go into the making of the content that you produce. And I think the same goes for us as commentators. You know, again, just like you don't want to malign CEPO, I would take someone like um, Professor Friedman, who often insists that there's a massive difference between being a commentator and an analyst, and that an analyst is someone who really just tells you the machinations in the ANC, what's going on, and doesn't try to judge, moralize and take a position. Um, And I think that is absolute nonsense. If you give me 10 columns written by any columnist, even if they profess not to have quote unquote politics, I would be able to infer it. But the point that I'm making, Richard, is that speaking for myself as an individual reader, I actually don't mind bias. I don't mind someone having a clear commitment to liberalism or to social democracy. I'd rather they be open about it and then judge the quality of their commentary on the basis of balance, fairness, accuracy and cogency.
1: Fascinating point. And I, I agree with much, if not all of that, uh, say, I'd answer with two little points. One, last week, I, as you may have noticed on Twitter, I was with a bunch of um, South African political leaders and politicians yes. from eight parties representing, I think, 98% of the current uh, political landscape. And one of them, who happens to be a political leader of a party who I respect over a long period of time, I won't n- name him to embarrass him, but what he said to me on this issue was, uh, Richard, we all have biases, we all have opinions, we all have views and worldviews on ideological biases and mm-hmm. tendencies, what in the legal uh, ju- uh, academia is called the inarticulate premise. It's the, often the subconscious mm-hmm. values and class biases, Products of our history and childhood and all of that, yes. we bring that to the table, whether we're aware of it or not. And he said, Absolutely. the only difference with someone like you, he said, as a public commentator, is you make those views and, and known <laughs> because you, you write on them. And I thought that was a an interesting and, and uh, subtle point and a good point. Uh, then the other issue I'd raise the story. I remember Freddie Ginwala, when she was Speaker of Parliament, you say this, and I, I don't remember if you uh, recall this, but she was challenged one day, and I was running Idasa's parliamentary monitoring program. She was challenged about the fact that she was refusing to uh re- withdraw or resign the ANC whip. In other words, she was staying, despite being Speaker, she was staying as a, a, a member of the ANC. Mm. Do you know what her answer was? And it was so interesting. She said, you know what? And she said to the media, if I resigned from the ANC today, which is what you all want, would that make a difference? No. I'm through and through the ANC. If you cut me in half, it will say ANC. I've mm-hmm. devoted my life to the ANC. It will make no difference. She said that's the wrong question. The question is, will I be an impartial uh, uh, and, and uh, independent-minded, open-minded Speaker yeah. of Parliament? Test me on that. Assess me on that. Don't prejudge me just because mm-hmm. I am uh, a career uh, devotee uh, of, the, uh, of the African National Congress. And I thought that was a really interesting point.
0: Yeah. The last question has been inadvertently answered, but I want to ask it explicitly. Um, and again, it's just framing the question. I think these are sort of um, bases for future deep dives into each of these questions, but let's surface them for the listeners of my podcast. And it's the question of can or should a political analyst, I would ask the same of a political journalist, for example, also be a political actor?
1: Well, I think I think they can. Let me
0: give you a concrete but, example, just to make yeah. it practical for, for, for all of us. Um, yeah. I'll forget the detail now, but you take, for example, a letter written to Parliament. I think it was by Lukor Guni and maybe JJ Tabane joined him or someone else. And there were mutterings that it's inappropriate, that you are veering from being a broadcaster, a commentator. Now suddenly you want to write an actual letter to for example, the speaker, and tell her how you feel about a particular matter and the the debate around that didn't play out in a way that was very useful analytically, but the subtext of the of the discomfort was that there, it's difficult to know where to draw the line, but a line must be drawn in terms of which role you play:
1: Yeah, I think there's probably a spectrum there, there may be a point in that spectrum at which you you commit yourself to the project uh, to the point where you have to then um, pick, a, pick a hat, you, know, you can't try and have both. Mm. You know, where that line is and where that point is is going to depend on the context, the facts and the judgement of the people uh, concerned and it's quite subtle actually, it's not as black and white as people might uh, you know, think. I remember when I joined the and was asked to set up that parliamentary launching programme in 1995. At the time, I was a member of the ANC, and I resigned my ANC immediately because I thought if I'm going to lead this program, which is going to be looking at Parliament as a whole, it's not appropriate that I should be a member of a a party. Has that changed my worldview? No, my worldview is uh, I'm a a social democrat committed to constitutional democracy and the rule of law and and sustainable economics. A bunch of words, but that's a, a, a crude summary of my worldview. And that informs my approach to analysis. It informs my approach to how I think the world should operate and how powerful actors should should operate and and um but does that uh, does that's that remove my ability to assess evidence and apply law to evidence? I would argue not
0: I think that's interesting. I'll tell you my self description and you can have the final say responding to that. I mean, I can't agree with you, I guess. I need to rethink where I'm at on this same question. Sometimes, you know, people have strong feelings about me, as apparently they do about you, as we they have family, do You, me, you know, you. and people <laughs> love and, and hate me in equal measure, and some are kind of like you yeah. few are indifferent. But what's interesting is that some of the people who like my role in our country sometimes give me a compliment that I don't actually take as a compliment. They will say things like, You're so objective, Eusebius. And I'm not objective. When I was on radio on a daily basis, I woke up, Richard, taking myself to be a bunch of words, a liberal egalitarian, who's deeply committed to anti-racism. And I'm not there to facilitate conversations and make everyone feel good. I'm Mm. not top billing. I'm not a magazine Mm. show. I'm there to convert as many South Africans into liberal egalitarianism as possible. I have an agenda. I want to change the world. And my friend, bless her soul, um, Karima used to say, her role when she was seconded by the ANC to the SABC in the 90s was not to go there and to be neutral, but that it's another frontier for bringing about material change in society. What do you make of that kind of view that in our space, we're not just there as facilitators, as people who are above the parapet, there's so much gross injustice in the world if all I'm doing is to write lyrically about inequality. I think that I'll be poorer as a commentator.
1: Yeah, I agree entirely. And and it goes back to your earlier point, that there's no such thing really as objectivity or neutral analysis. We all come with our biases and our worldviews. And, and we should not be um, scared of, of being proud of our worldviews uh, and putting them forward. Mm. Um, we could be activists as well as Um, In my view, um, analysts, if our analysis is is deceitful, if we ignore uh, clear facts, if we ignore the science on an issue like climate change, for example, that's not analysis, that's that's fake news and it's dishonest. But if our analysis is consistent with our worldview and our principles and our values, then I think that's absolutely appropriate and right.
0: Mm. Richard, I love your work. We sometimes disagree but there's deep mutual respect i like the fact that you take a position you argue for it and even i'm not to call you old even when i was a undergraduate lighty um with a hangover i would go down in high street in gravestar to go and buy the mail and guardian to read your column Um, of course the other great columnists at the time stephen friedman's one was in there john machikiza was in there and it was precisely because there's an argument that I would have to grapple with and that for me is what I want. I don't want someone to shy away for fear of dividing Twitter. So thanks for the role that you play and thanks for coming on this platform.
1: Thank you, Yosebis, so and the feelings mutual, I have great respect to you and your role and the way you play it, so thank you very much for having me on Cheers. Today.